may be around the world, thank you for your company on truthtoyou.org. That's truthnumber2letteru.org. Joining me this hour is one of the world's foremost authorities on missionaries, cults, and the Jewish community. Is the Director of Education and Counseling for Jews for Judaism in Canada. The website is jewsforjudaism.ca. Jewsforjudaism.ca. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Scoback. Hi, John. Oh, I'm really sorry that we missed you last week, but it's good to be back this week. I miss you too, my friend. And I tell you what, there's a whole lot of people that are hanging on this series, including Carmen Welker, who uh, was very kind to leave some comments on Facebook. So g'day to Carmen. Shout out to you. And uh, it so turns out that she has this uh, very same list that we are going through on her website. And she has this, this very same list, 365 prophecies of Jesus in the Tanakh, supposed 365 messianic prophecies, one for every single day of the year of Jesus in the Tanakh, supposedly fulfilled in the New Testament. And she wrote in this past week on, as I said, on Facebook, she's a little bit cranky uh, that we're doing this, (laughs) a little bit cranky that we're we're actually doing this uh, series. As I said, she has this list. And uh, she certainly expressed her, uh, her um, disapproval, if you like, uh, saying that uh, Tanakh-only uh, views are shallow uh, and that you need to get the whole truth, that is, that uh, the, the Tanakh and the New Testament, in order to, to truly understand. And uh, so she said, be assured, be assured, Michael, that as long as there are people like you out there leading people away from the whole truth, I will be out there to loudly warn them, count on it, is what she said. So uh, it was it was timely, actually, that Jason got on the thread, uh, Jason Spiritual Babies of spiritualbabies.net. G'day, Jason. And uh, of course, you've done some programs with Jason as well, haven't you? Yes. And uh, And he said, Carmen... It would be a lot of help if you backed up your accusation with some scriptural proof. Now, that's always a handy thing to do. He said, uh, number one, listen to the whole show. And this means you won't be ignorant. Number two, point out where this information is incorrect using God's word, uh, his own words, as said in the Tanakh. Then you will have grounds to state your accusation of leading people astray. He said, I look forward to your response. Of course, there was no response. We're still waiting for the response. But nevertheless, we do have the list that she has on her website, the 365, and we continue to work our way through them. And good heavens, are we up to, we're up to number 68. Unbelievable. <laughs> it's, we're know, steaming ahead. You know, I should just say one thing if I could. I mean, I, I'd love to actually read what Carmen wrote, but, you know, the idea that you have to have um, both the Hebrew scriptures and the Greek scriptures in order to really make sense of anything is problematic for a few reasons. One is that the, you know, the, the, I guess the angle that we're taking here is that there are many Christians who insist that only using the Hebrew scriptures, they can prove that Jesus was the Messiah because he fulfilled all these prophecies. But the other problem is that there was no uh, Greek scriptures at the time of Jesus. It took many, many years for those to be written. So, at the time that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah, all you had was the Hebrew Scriptures. And uh, if the idea that he was the Messiah could not have been validated at that that time, just simply using the prophecies of the Jewish Scriptures, then it doesn't really help to say that many, many years later, there's going to be additional uh, revelation that will help, because those were not available at the time that Jesus made his claims. Um, Mm. So, 
I think that the other problem is that it sort of begs the question because once you accept the validity of the Greek scriptures, they just set out axiomatically, they make the claim that Jesus was the Messiah and then, you know, take it or leave it. Um, it sort of ignores the thrust of what we're doing here, which is to read the uh, scriptures in the Hebrew Bible, uh, to try and read them in their own context, um, the way anyone would have read them at the time they were written, and as anyone would have read them in the first century, before there was a, a, a New Testament. And basically, with that perspective of, of studying the Hebrew Scriptures, to just ascertain whether or not they really do contain these alleged 365 very clear and forceful prophecies that prove that Jesus was the Messiah. So I think that to bring in the, you know, the need to have the New Testament sort of uh, blurs the issue, and it really is a red herring. Um, mm. But I'll, I'll look forward to reading uh, the comments and maybe jumping into the discussion online myself. We may, we <laughs> may do that. And after all, I mean, it's, it's a good thing to have some healthy opposition, I think. And uh, nevertheless, we'll have to make do with Carmen. Now, number 68, Psalm 16 verse, well, you know what? It, number 68 and number 69 are together. We're going to, as an entree, uh, we're going to do uh, 68, 69, and 70 on the list. It deals with Psalm 16 and Psalm 17, and then everything after that, up up to Psalm, oh, good heavens, 87, uh, number 87 is Psalm 22, where that that's one of the big go-to verses. If you really have to convert a Jew quickly, uh, you're going you're gonna to use Psalm 22, and we're going to spend most of our time there. However, uh, that's our main meal. The entree is Psalm 16, verses 9 through to 11, and it does say, and I'll, I'll read it out here, Therefore, my heart is glad and uh, my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Okay. Nice. That's, there's, okay. It is now, a, it now is a this, beautiful psalm, actually. It's a beautiful psalm, but it's, uh, this particular list couples that beautiful psalm, at least those verses, with passages like Acts chapter 2, verse 31. It says, For he, seeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Uh, also, John chapter 20, verse 9, it says, For as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. But for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Where I think there's a lot of people in that position who listen to the program at the moment. <laughs> what are your thoughts? Well, you know, the question is, I think, uh, first of all, what, is, what are they trying to extract from this passage? I mean, it, it seems that what they're trying to say is that this psalm contains, again, a, a prophecy, uh, a piece of evidence, if you will, which helps to identify the Messiah. And that fact or that piece of evidence is that the psalm is teaching us that the Messiah will be someone who will die but then be resurrected from the death. They're not, they're not going to simply die. They're going to uh, get up very quickly from that death. And that's, it seems to be what they're trying to say uh, here. And the question is, is that what the psalm is really speaking about? Um, is it really telling us something about the Messiah specifically here? And is it really talking about um, the Messiah being resurrected from the dead? 
So mm-hmm. I think that um, the simplest way of understanding this psalm, um, first of all, it, it doesn't speak about the Messiah. I mean, just reading it on the simplest level, it's called a Michtam of David. So David here is basically speaking about himself. It's autobiographical. And on the simplest level, if you read the entire psalm, it's speaking about David really here thanking God um, and expressing his appreciation that God saved him from tremendous danger. David was often on the brink of death. Um, Mm. There were plenty of people trying to kill him. And so David here is basically saying that God didn't allow him to, to die and go down into the grave. And that seems to be really the simplest uh, way of understanding this psalm. And it's, it's actually a, a theme that comes up frequently in, in the whole book of Psalms, in Psalm 30, um, verse 4, in Psalm 56, verse 14, in Psalm 116, verse 8. Many places, David basically acknowledges that his life was in great danger, meaning he could have gone down to the grave. It could have been the end of the show. And yet God did not allow that to happen. God preserved his life. So that may be one way of looking at this passage. The other way of looking at it is that he's expressing here his confidence that even after he dies, um, he, it's not going to be the end of the story, meaning that he's confident that his soul will go on to be with God even after his death, which is not something that specifically applies only to David or only to the Messiah. This applies to all human beings that are essentially in God's good graces. Um, the Bible speaks about the idea that, uh, you know, the soul, because it's not physical like the body, it does not decompose, does not die, it doesn't basically uh, end. It returns. It, the the it soul really returns to God after death. And there is a teaching, obviously, in the Bible that there will be, at some future point, a resurrection of all the dead. I mean, that mm. after people die throughout history, um, you know, they're not immediately resurrected, uh, but we know that while their body is buried and decomposes, their soul continues to exist in uh, some form, some relationship mm-hmm. with God. And then the Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7, and uh, in Daniel chapter 12, verse yep. 2, I think, um, mm. that there will be a resurrection, that these bodies will be reconstituted. But the point is, there's nothing here that is limiting this idea to the Messiah specifically. It's a general idea that applies to basically many, many, many people. And so mm. this passage in Psalms really is pretty useless when it comes to being some kind of uh, specific proof text about the Messiah. It's not really coming to do that. Um, it's really more... No, and- as, as has often been the case in this list thus far. Uh, number 70, Psalm chapter 17, verse 15, uh, it says that, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. The New Testament uh, link to that verse, according to the list, is Luke 24, 6. It says, He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee. Mm. Okay, so again, this would be a a good example of sort of uh, reading backwards from the Greek scriptures and, you know, plugging uh, ideas from the Christian Bible back into the Jewish Bible. Um, It could never work in the reverse, meaning that reading Mm. Psalm 17, you're not going to uh, extract anything from this psalm that's predictive of the Messiah specifically. 
Um, once they have their belief that Jesus was resurrected, they then the sort of reconstruct uh, yeah. this psalm. But this psalm is, first of all, not, not, not a prophecy about the Messiah. And again, we know that one day there'll be a general resurrection. Mm. Um, you know, it's not speaking specifically about one person in history. So that is our, that's our entree. There's the soup. Okay, we'll put that bowl aside. Now we're going to get into the main meal. That is, of course, Psalm chapter 22. Oh, my goodness. Now, uh, number 71, 72, 73 deals with, uh, on the list, deals with Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2. And uh, those verses say, now, should I, should I read the whole chapter or shall we just go through it as it is? Uh, as it is listed, what, what would you like? That's a great question. <laughs> I'm gonna, before we even before we even do that, you know what? I'm just going to read the the way that the uh, even before it starts, the way that it is addressed because I love this. It's so beautiful. Uh, it says to the chief musician, set to the deer of the dawn or the doe of the dawn. What a beautiful name for a piece of music. First of all, that's true. It's, Isn't that nice? I mean, it, I just think that's beautiful. It's actually it, it, it sort of clears up a lot of problems when you translate it into the English. The Hebrew phrase is very, very obscure, and you know, there's an old saying that the translator is a traitor. Um, yes, because um, you know, it's sort of it, it gives the impression that all is clear here and that there's no problems because you know exactly what it's saying. Although even the expression "deer of the dawn." Um, isn't immediately uh, clear in terms of what it means either. But the, the Hebrew is a very, very obscure. It's Ayelet HaShachar. And uh, it's, it's, you know, again, it, there are volumes written about what it might mean. But I'm, I'm happy to go with this translation for now. So I just think that's a beautiful title. It's just that quite often when, when people read the Psalms, they never read the, uh, uh, the, the introduction to the Psalm at the beginning. And that's, I, I just find that beautiful. And it's a Psalm of David. It identifies as a Psalm of David. And uh, I'll tell you what, I will read. I'll read verse 1 and 2, get your comments after that. Christians, of course, will be very familiar with verse 1. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from my words, the words of my groaning, Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, I am not silent. Now, the first, the first thing that goes through my mind is, surely verse 1 has got to be a problem for Trinitarians. I mean, I... Uh, the, the whole messianic thing aside, I guess we don't have time to go into that. Uh, in general, this this problem comes up, you know, many times in the Bible, where um, you know Jesus addresses God, uh, you know, as his God, and you know, if Jesus himself is God, it's it's sort of difficult, um, you know, in terms of <laughs> in terms of I guess sorting out, you know, who is who. Um, it's like it could be like a one of these uh, comedy routines: who's on first, and I don't know who's on second. And uh, so, obviously, it's not just a matter of, you know, Jesus addressing God as my God, you know, but the idea that he feels forsaken by God. Um, I mean, usually what Trinitarians do is argue that Jesus was both all man and all God, and Mm. that, you know, sometimes scripture speaks in terms of his humanness, and sometimes it speaks more from the perspective of his divinity, um, but it, it's it's you know, it's obviously it's you know um, it's a murky area, and that's why the church for so many years would refer to this as the mystery of the Trinity because it is it's a it's a very difficult um, t- 
topic. It's it's not something which is simple to understand. It's almost impossible to understand. <laughs> but I think it was Tertullian was was the one that said, right? I believe it because it's absurd. You know, he said that if it made perfect sense, there'd be no virtue in believing it. Um, so for him, there was a virtue in the fact that it was sort of absurd. Um, it was weird. But it, it is obviously it's it's a it's a conundrum in terms of understanding the Trinity. Well, um, in in any case, it has uh, the the corresponding verses in the New Testament according to the list. Uh, there's a number of them. Second Corinthians five twenty one. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Uh, Mark fifteen thirty four. Of course, this is Jesus. Uh, crying out with a loud, a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, uh, which translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, also, I, and, and I suppose this has to do with uh, crying out in the night. Uh, they've got Matthew 27, verse 45. Uh, now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land. That seems to be some sort of... Uh, uh, artificial darkness, not the nighttime, but some kind of darkness that came over the land, some sort of eclipse, perhaps, uh, is what they're claiming there. What are your thoughts on the first couple of well, verses? you know, the first one here, 71 on the list, it, it says that Psalm 22, verse 1, speaks about the, um, the Messiah being forsaken because of the sins of others. Now, again, it's important to be precise here and realize that all we see from the psalm is that the speaker is feeling forsaken, but mm. it doesn't say anything about why, uh, you know, the this, this psalm, psalmist was feeling forsaken. It doesn't so mention. Give us, an overview, give us an overview of the psalm, because uh, from what I can understand, uh, it, it seems like David is feeling overwhelmed because of the, uh, the, the ferociousness of his enemies that he likens to, to lions and dogs and, and, and oxes, you know, powerful enemies that he has. Uh, that 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 mock him, that seek to kill him, that and, and he seems totally overwhelmed and uh, even quite in despair over it all. And this is him crying out to God, uh, feeling as if God has forsaken him uh, whilst in this situation. Is that a fair uh, summary? You know, it, it's one of the reasons why the Book of Psalms is so poignant because, you know, through David, we really are encountering someone who has a, a real genuine relationship with God and David goes through these real feelings where at the same time he writes about his trusting in God and his confidence in God and his you know his his certainty that things will work out ultimately but he's honest with himself and he mm. does have feelings of you know terror and he has feelings of uh, you know, even feeling abandoned on, the, you know, it, it's it, it's it, it's obviously not a simple uh, relationship to have because at the same time, when a person is feeling terrible pain and suffering, and even th that might lead them to feel they're abandoned by God, but at the same time, they acknowledge that they put their trust in God, and ultimately, they think they will emerge victorious. It's mm -hmm. interesting, you know, the commentaries try to really struggle with, uh, I guess, who the subject is here. And it's understood usually in the three ways generally by Jewish commentaries. Two of them, mm -hmm. I think, I would say are on the level of pshat. Pshat is basically the simple, straightforward yep. reading. Yep. reading it. Uh, usually it would be speaking about David and his life, which obviously was a life of tremendous 
suffering and rejection. I mean, his own family was going after him to kill him, his father and mm. his son. I mean, he did not have an easy life. And so here he writes about his own torments and his own feeling of abandonment and suffering. Um, and, and another way the psalm is understood is it really is speaking ultimately about the uh, national experience of the Jewish people. You know, David is always considered the heart of the Jewish people. And, mm. uh, you know, the Jewish people have suffered incredibly. I mean, it's anyone that bothers to read a history of the Jews, I mean, you're reading mm. a pretty difficult story. Um, it's not pretty, and it's not uh, peaceful. And so mm. the Jews, over their long history, um, you know, I'll tell you, I don't know if I mentioned this last time, that when I was in uh, Europe this summer, um, I went to Theresienstadt, which was a concentration mm -hmm. camp. And yeah. uh, we found, we, we were taken to this little room where the, the prisoners, they would pray secretly. They had a little private secret room where the Nazis didn't know they were praying. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was very powerful because we prayed in that room as well. And I was just imagining mm -hmm. as I was praying, you know, 70 years, 65 years earlier, these people in this concentration camp, many of whom would, would be killed and die, praying mm -hmm. in this room. And the prisoners had written on the wall passages from the prayer book and one of the lines they wrote from the prayer book was from the prayer called Tachanun where they say um, in spite of all this we have not forgotten your name please do not forget us you know wow. in, in spite of all this and you think about you know what it means to be a Jew the, the Jew of history you know mm. in spite of the crusades in spite of the inquisitions in spite of the pogroms in spite of the mass murders in spite of the holocaust in spite of mm. all this we have not forgotten your name so, when you read the book of Psalms, you know, you're reading the, often the biography of David, but he really symbolizes the experience of the Jew in history, that mm. we've gone through tremendous, incredible suffering, almost impossible to imagine, and we feel it, you know, we feel it very deeply, and it sometimes feels like, where is God? What's happening? What's, what's going on? Um, mm. And at, at the same time, you see in the Psalms, the, the, the writer is speaking about their tremendous hope and trust that they have in God. So those are mm. two ways, I think, that I would say are the easiest and most straightforward ways of reading it. The rabbis on a midrashic level, so a midrashic homiletical approach, mm -hmm. they say it really is talking about Queen Esther, believe it or not. That, wow, really? <laughs> yes. Wow. That, that Queen Esther was really here expressing her sense of abandonment. You know, when she's taken basically as a prisoner to, to have to live with this miserable king. And um, when you, if you read a rabbinic commentary to this psalm, they literally go through each word and they correlate it to the story of not just Esther and her harrowing experience, but the tremendous danger that the Jews experienced at that time because Haman was intent on genocide. So mm. they, they do sort of. Um, midrashically, I don't think anyone thinks that, that that there's a suggestion that that's what really David was really writing about on some mm. simple level. But they do apply this to the to the Purim story and to Esther's uh, torments there. Well, that's fascinating. I've I've never read Psalm 22 with that in mind, but of course, if it can apply to see, because you can, of course, you can read Esther uh, and appreciate again the suffering of the Jewish people as you just outlined. Uh, so, so why not? If this can also apply to Israel, then surely it can apply to the story of Esther. And it would be interesting to do the experiment and read that with Esther in mind. I've, I've never done that. You know, the Christian might argue that, well, you can equally apply it to the sufferings of Jesus. 
on that level, meaning that you know, sure. and I would say, why not? Meaning that, sure, that absolutely. Once, once you are approaching the scripture homiletically, meaning allegorically, mm. um, midrashically, it, you're basically spinning it. You're you're reading it poetically, and you're not reading it on its surface value. You're reading it on an interpretive level that is very, very sort of subjective and and poetic and allegorical. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. They have a right to do that, but they don't realize that the problem is that when you're reading the Bible on that level, um, where it can re- it can stand for, it can be a shadow or a type, it could really represent almost anything. And on mm-hmm. on a level of, again, this is a, supposed to be a proof text to prove something, to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. I always say to my students that once the Scripture can mean anything, it means nothing. I mean that it doesn't really have any probative value. It has no value as a proof text once mm. you're opening it up to that kind of latitude of interpretation. Now, if Jesus is, if we understand Yeshua to be a, uh, a zealot of sorts, a Torah observant person, zealous for his faith, uh, and, and wanting to bring about uh, repentance and uh, so on and so forth, it would make sense, would it not? I mean, it's fair that he would be, uh, the, the Romans have put him upon this, this execution stake, that he would utter these words. Um, this would not be unusual, right? Well, you know, I would argue, I mean, I, and I readily admit that I, I certainly can't prove this, that I think those words out of his mouth would be very, very understandable, meaning that mm. he was someone who really did come to believe that he would be the redeemer of Israel, and that was, and I think it's it's not an evil thing, you know, for a person to think that they might be the Messiah. I think it's actually a very noble uh, uh, sentiment to have, meaning that for a person to feel that they're going to be God's instrument to redeem the world and to make the world a better place, that, that's not a bad thing unless you're out of your mind. But for a healthy person, uh, emotionally and mentally healthy, it's not a terrible uh, sentiment to harbor. And so I think he came to believe, and, and you know, it was a time when there actually were several other Jews at that time who thought they were going to be the mm-hmm. Redeemer. It was a time where mm. sort of messianic expectation was very, very uh, rich. Mm. And, you know, he had a group of people who thought he were gonna, was going to redeem the Jewish people, and uh, things are moving along, I guess, uh, you know, because Passover in Jewish history was always the holiday of Redemption. The rabbis say that just like we were redeemed in the month of Nisan, so we will re- be, be redeemed in the month of Nisan. And I think his expectation was that when he came into Jerusalem, you know, God would have these great miracles happen, and mm. uh, the, the, the Romans would be overthrown. And as he said, his whole his entire ministry, he was saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Mm. He expected that there'd be a new world order. That it was imminent. It, he expected it, and here he now is about to die after suffering on the cross. And I think mm. it's, it's understandable that he says, you know what? I, I, I feel I, abandoned. I, not just abandoned, but I recognize now that I, I really wasn't the person I thought I was. It's, mm. I think it's an expression of great disappointment and the sense that I didn't fulfill what I had come to do. Now, mm. I know that Christians will say, no, this statement is a great, statement of his success because he came to take the sins of the world upon himself and when all the sins of the world are placed upon jesus you know and he he goes to hell for a number of days 
and he's going to suffer because of you know bearing all these sins. And once you know a person has all these sins, we know that sin separates a person from God. So when he says, "My God, my God, why have forsa- why have you forsaken me?" He's really giving expression to the fact that, that he's accomplished what he was supposed to accomplish, which was to take all the sins of the world upon himself and undergo this feeling of abandonment because of those sins. I mean, I know that's how Christians will read it. I just think that uh, a more straightforward reading of that expression um, in the context of this psalm is would be to have Jesus acknowledging to himself at least that I, I, I guess it didn't work out. I guess mm. it, 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 mm. it all, all has come crashing down upon me. Yeah, and it's certainly expressed in those first couple of verses. So uh, now the next uh, uh, on the list, uh, number 74, 75, 76, uh, deal with Psalm 22, verses 7, 8, and 9. If it's okay, I am going to read the, the verses in between because it's such a beautiful chapter. I think it would be uh, a shame to leave gaps. So moving on from um, verse 2, verse 3 says, But you, you are holy enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our, fa- our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you saved them. You delivered them. They cried to you and they were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed just just in that i mean we don't have time to talk about that but that in that that uh, four and five versus four and five alone surely should say to the christian well why did we need jesus to come in the first place if those two verses are correct but moving on uh number six uh, verse six i am but a worm and no man a reproach of men and despised by people all those who see me ridicule me they shoot out the lip and they shake their heads saying he trusted in the lord let him rescue him let let him deliver him since he delights in him but you are he who took me out of the womb you made me trust while on my mother's breast now the uh, the corresponding verses there according to this list of the 365 so-called messianic prophecies uh, in the tanakh fulfilled in the new testament it says that uh, they shoot out the lip and, and shake the head, corresponding to Matthew Matthew 27, verse 39. It says, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. Now, there's a question. Is it possible to blaspheme a person? Well, the Christian insists that Jesus was not a person. He was God in the flesh, right? Oh, so, okay, once yeah. a person's mocking Jesus, they are ipso facto mocking God. Uh, all right. So, there's an assertion being made. Also, uh, Matthew 27, 43, it says uh, he, trusted in, uh, he trusted in God. This is people saying, you know, there he is on the cross. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now uh, and let him save him. For he said, I am the son of God. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 7, it says, and she brought forth her firstborn son wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in the manger because there was no room for uh, them in the inn. Now, I suppose that corresponds to verse 9 that says, but you you are he who took me out of my mother's womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I guess it talks about being born and, and being with your mother. It's certainly not a messianic prophecy that says he'll be wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger. I think we can... <laughs> Maybe leave that one alone. But what are your thoughts on those verses? You know, what what becomes clear when we go through this list is that, um, you know, the the Christian uh, enterprise here really saw this psalm as, um, you know, not just one verse in this psalm, but they really came to see the entire psalm as um, 
really very descriptive of the passion narrative. Mm-hmm. And so what they did was, as you can see, I mean, they're extracting 20 proofs out of this passage mm. that they, they really doubled down on this psalm. And they went to great lengths um, and they really strained to try to really interpret every single phrase practically um, as somehow, um, you know, predictive of um, Jesus fulfilling some prophecy. I'm surprised that they didn't include in this list um, where it says in verse 6 that he was despised by the people. Yeah, right? reproach I mean, of men and despised by the people. Yeah, yeah, they didn't include that on the list. I think that, you know, if a person was imaginative, they could have squeezed a lot more out of this psalm. <laughs> so, no doubt. Um, you know, I think that, you know, where it, it speaks about, you know, the tormentors of this person, um, you know, shaking their head, wagging their head, and shooting out the lip. Um, you know, it's it's clearly when you read Psalm 22, uh, if you were to have read this psalm a hundred years before Christianity, you wouldn't have read this psalm and have assumed that this was somehow a prophecy about the Messiah. Mm. Um, you know, it's and it's also, it would be an absurd kind of piece of evidence because, you know, every person in the planet has had people, you know, sort of, mocking them and it's not something that mm. really is is you know when you have a, an identifying information it's supposed to be really exclusive you know if, if you say the messiah is going to be a human being that has two eyes so every person on the planet has two eyes mm. it, it's really not a serious um piece of evidence and um it's interesting that when you get to the third one on this list that you mentioned um, they say in the notes here that's, that verse 9 is speaking about the birth of the Savior. Now, again, that's really squeezing a tremendous amount. It's taking great... Isn't it? Yeah, because the, the psalm mentions nothing about um, a Savior. And no. um, the other problem is that, and this is something I think that many people don't think about, um, the word Savior in Christianese means very, very different things than it would mean in the... Hebrew Bible, mm. um, you know, the word Savior in Hebrew is Moshiach. Now, it sounds like the Hebrew word Moshiach, Messiah. Mm. It's interesting, there's two words, the Savior and Messiah in Hebrew sound very similar. Moshiach mm. and Moshiach. And the word Moshiach comes up, Savior, many, many times in the Bible. In the book of mm. Judges, it comes up a million times. And it comes up, uh, you know, hundreds of times. And in the Hebrew scriptures, it refers to uh, someone who rescues either an individual or the nation, usually the nation, from their physical oppression. Mm. So, when the writer of this list um, said that, you know, this speaker here, the the person that's uh, expressing their frustration and fear was born the Savior, they're assuming it's Savior in the sense of Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, where it says they're going to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Uh, you don't find that use of the word Savior or salvation in the Hebrew Bible. Um, mm. So, it is strange that they're both inserting something that's not in the passage, and they're also inserting it in a way where it distorts the meaning of the word anyway. And we're going to see that, actually, that, that's, that continues on in number, well, now the following ones. Well, let me read the, 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 uh, the uh, gaps in between, the verses in between. That was verse 9. It goes on to say, I was cast upon 
you from birth, this is, we can say David taught. Now, of course, David was a Messiah. But as you point yes, out, this is not, he was a Messiah. Yeah. And, uh, and he will be a, a, again. But it's not that it's talking about a, uh, it's not specifically talking about a future Messiah. And that's very, very clear. And it's, it, he says here, I was cast upon you from birth, uh, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. Like a raging and roaring lion. Verse 14. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. And uh, it, it continues on uh, for dogs have... Well, I'll tell you what, let's get to that person just a little <laughs> while. Okay. 14, 14 and 15. Now, the, um, the verses that they uh, correspond here, and, uh, and this is uh, number 77 and 78 on the list, John nineteen thirty four, uh, which says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Uh, the other verse is... Um, uh, Mark, uh, they say Mark fifteen thirty four to 37. Again, this is uh, Jesus cl- crying out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that, and they said, look, he's calling for Elijah. And then someone ran and filled a sponge of sour wine and, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, uh, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come down to take him down. That'll be a good show. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. They are the verses that they are corresponding there. But in the list, it says that um, in verse 14, it says, it says that he died of a, of a broken, ruptured, they've got in brackets, died of a broken and ruptured heart. Does it say that in, in, in Psalm, 14, 22, uh, Psalm, Psalm 22 verse 14? No, it doesn't. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, people think about a broken heart like, you know, your lover jilted you or something. But here, it, uh. it really, it seems to be assuming that um, his heart literally ruptured, meaning that uh, the heart... Um, it says, my heart is like wax, it is melted within me, and they're obviously likening that to the Roman soldier who pierced his side. Well, that happened after he was dead, though. Yeah, I know. So they're saying that the psalmist here, when when the writer says that my heart was melted within me, um, you know, it was poured out like water. That um, you know, it's an expression of dying because the heart has melted. The heart somehow has has collapsed. The heart is not mm. really, um, you know. The, the problem is, I mean, again, aside from the fact this is not a messianic prediction. Um, that we know that Jesus didn't die from a ruptured heart. He died from uh, asphyxiation. Yeah. Um, so it wouldn't really be the, the, the coroner's report wouldn't say that he died of a heart melting like wax. Huh. Um, now, in number 78 here, it says that the psalm prefigures his suffering um, agony on Calvary yeah. Um, again, the, 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 there's no mention in this psalm of anything about Calvary at all. No. Um, and uh, again, it's it's not a psalm where it really is, at least when you're reading it in its own terms, not speaking about the Messiah. The one that I really was fascinated by mm-hmm. was in number 79 here, where it says, Psalm 22:15, he thirsted. 
Mm. Um, by the way, we should point out, just for the people that are listening, that there is a difference in the pagination between a uh, Jewish translation of the Bible, Jewish version, and the Christian version. Usually, they're one verse apart. Um, so, anyone that's, that's reading, um, you know, in the um, Jewish versions, usually it'd be one verse later. Mm-hmm. Um, so, don't, don't be confused, because I'm actually reading from a Christian translation, right. the, uh, the New King James uh, version is where yeah, I'm reading. Yeah, so anyone from. that's confused, just, just read the next verse, and you'll find what we're talking about. And you'll be about. okay. <laughs> so, if you're... Well, this is... Uh, this is John nineteen eighteen. It says after this Jesus knowing I think John nineteen twenty eight. Thank you, John nineteen twenty eight. And it says after this Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, "I thirst." Now I was fascinated by this because how how would you understand what John is saying? Um, I mean, it, it, it's kind of like saying um, that that he's. Uh, it's like saying that, that in order that uh, to, to fulfill, uh, I, don't, I don't know, what, what goes through your mind? It's a, I'm a bit baffled <laughs> I, when I look at this. I was puzzled by it, and I came up with two possibilities. Um, again, they're saying that in this psalm, in verse 2215, the, the teaching that we're getting, the teaching from the Jewish Bible is that the Messiah will be thirsty, and that's an important you know, piece of the description mm. of the Messiah. Now, what it seems to be saying here is that in order to fulfill this prophecy that the Messiah is supposed to be thirsty, Jesus said, let everyone know I'm that thirsty. he is. Yeah. He better let everyone know that he is and make sure it's someone record hope that someone records it before he before he dies. Because at least then he's you know, he's got another one on the list of three hundred and sixty five. Right. Right. It's on record. All right. Like it's on in, record. In the same way you may you could say, for example, I mean it's not maybe a great example, but you know that let's say Let's say there was a prophecy that the Messiah would ride on a white donkey or a donkey. Mm-hmm. So, in order to fulfill that, Jesus made sure that he didn't just walk into Jerusalem or get taken on a wagon, but he actually rode on a donkey. So, mm. on some level, you know, it, it seems that that Jesus himself is consciously doing things to fulfill what he thought were um, the precise uh, predictions and mm. prophecies about the Messiah. I think what's more likely is that the gospel writers themselves, yes. when they constructed this story, when they put together the, their account of the crucifixion, that when, they, when they composed the crucifixion narratives, they composed it with Psalm 22 in mind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether or not he actually cried, I mean, it's, it, it's, I, I can imagine someone that's dying on a crucifixion stake being very thirsty, and mm. crying out, you know, I'm mm. thirsty. But when John says that he did it to fulfill Scripture, that's a little mm. bit weird. Meaning that if he if he screamed, I'm thirsty because he was thirsty, that makes sense. If sure. he screamed, I'm thirsty because he knew to tick that, the box, right? <laughs> exactly, tick that one off. That's a little bit weird. So that is kind of odd. <laughs> I think what makes more sense is whether or not he actually did express this verbally. Um, and it's interesting because it's very unlikely, almost impossible, that any of the gospel writers were there at the scene. Um, and I think that when they put those words into his mouth here, it was they who were trying to make sure that the story f- matched up with Psalm 22. Mm. And, that, and that seems compelling. Of course, this is 
uh, taken, uh, it's trying to match up with Psalm 22, verse 15. I'll just read it again. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my, my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of the earth. Uh, and, and that, according to uh, this list, John 19, 28, is saying that Jesus said that he was thirsty to fulfill that very verse. A bit odd. Okay, so moving on, because <laughs> for the sake of time, Verse 16. Now, this is where we've got some fireworks here, right? This is what it says in Psalm 22, 16 and on. For, in fact, I'm going to read two verse. Let me see now. 16, 17. I'm going to go to 16, 17, and 18. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked have in, enclosed me. They pierced. I've got a little asterisk there. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. All right. Where shall we begin? The verses that correspond to this on the list. And we're looking at uh, 80, 81 and 82. So Psalm 22, verse 16. They pierced my hands. Uh, they pierced his hands and his feet. John nineteen thirty four. Uh, is the is is uh, the verse that they have corresponding in the New Testament? It says, "But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out." Uh, it, it also references verse thirty-seven. Now we've addressed this in another program, haven't we? Because verse thirty-six of John nineteen says, "For these things were done that the scriptures should be fulfilled; not one of his bones shall be broken." It goes on in thirty-seven, and again another scripture: "They shall look upon him who they pierced." Now that. That quote there is not in the Psalms. That quote there is from Zechariah, if, if I'm correct. Is yes. that right? And what's really puzzling is that the Psalm here, if you mistranslate it, we'll get into the translation in a minute. But mm -hmm. if you accept the, the translation of the uh, Christian version, it's they pierced my hands and feet. The, the reference to the book of John here is where the Romans pierce his side. The Romans don't pierce his hands and feet. The piercing of the hands and feet is done in the process of putting him up on the crucifixion stake, mm -hmm. and they put the nails into his wrists and into his feet. So, so this it, is not a fair uh, cross-reference at all. Well, I, th I think what motivated them was that, you know, the piercing of the hands and feet is sort of implied in the Christian scriptures. It's not actually spelled out. Um, I don't know if it actually says that in the process of crucifying him, they, they, they nailed in his wrists and his, his ankles, but there is an explicit verse that later on, the Romans, in order to make sure he was dead, they pierced his side. So, mm. because there's an explicit mention of piercing, they sort of glom onto that. The problem is it doesn't correspond with the, with the words of their uh, mistranslation of Psalm. Psalm speaks about oh, specifically the yeah. hands and feet. Yeah, it is peculiar. Um, you know, it, Again, a grasping of straws, and then, uh, and then, as I said, uh, John nineteen thirty seven is quoting from a different place in the Tanakh altogether. Yeah, so it, it, it's uh, <laughs> you get we don't a, have to go into detail there because we're going to we're going to be doing that one eventually. That's that's yes. got to be on the list. I, I, oh, yeah. I, I think it must be. But, safe, uh, so that, again, that's that's a that's a that's a. Uh, I, I would have to say there's a mistake <laughs> to to match that up to that particular verse. There is one more verse in this list uh, on on piercing his hands and his feet, and that is John chapter twenty verse twenty seven. Uh, Jesus is talking to Thomas, and he said, "Hey, check it out. Put your finger in here." Look which is again, which is it. in his side. It's not in the feet or in the hands. Put so your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. That's right. 
do not be unbelieving, but believe. So, yeah, well, it makes, at least it makes reference to look at my hands. Yes. First of all, what I find interesting is that the, um, the Greek scriptures, um, they cite many, many of the phrases in this psalm. Um, you know, about him being thirsty, for example, which is mm. sort of very, very odd. And, you know, th- they, they, um, they try to seize upon many, many uh, what they consider to be references to the crucifixion in the book of Psalms. This mm-hmm. particular verse, which would have been the best, 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 best one, the Gospels don't mention, meaning that the Gospels never quote Psalm 22, verse 16. They don't have this verse, they pierced my hands and feet. Um, mm. So that's sort of weird that they don't quote it. Now, maybe we'll understand in a moment why they didn't quote it. Um, probably the best reason for not quoting it is it's a mistranslation. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we, get it. we can beat around the bush all we want, but we're going to have to deal with that because as I said when I read it out, uh, there's a little asterisk there and in the New King James Study Bible, that's usually they're telling me that they're not entirely uh, telling all the truth. If I go down and I look at uh, the little asterisk and tiny little writing next to that verse at the bottom of the page, it says that uh, the uh, Masoretic text reads like a lion. What do we do with that? Okay. So, you know, let's uh, say for uh, argument's sake that this is a difficult word to translate. The word in Hebrew is ka'ari. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and let's say, you know, for some reason, uh, we want to say that the, there's a dispute here between, you know, Judaism and Christianity on how to translate this word. Usually, what I find happening is that Christians will say to me, you know, Rabbi Skobak, you are so uh, terrified of seeing Jesus in this psalm that you mistranslate it to read uh, like a lion. And I usually say, et tu, missionary, <laughs> you're so, so desperate to see Jesus, you will probably mistranslate it to read they pierced. Um, before I go into the, this translation issue, we should say, by the way, that even if the text did say they pierced my hands and feet, um, it's important to realize that it would not prove that Jesus is the subject. Um, the truth is that uh, we know about 100,000 Jews are crucified by the Romans, Mm. And so, you know, if Jesus was the only person in history to have his hands and feet pierced, then you could say it's pointing to him. But it's sort of useless because, you know, it describes really so many people. Um, Mm. But the Mm. point is that, you know, the Christian would accuse the Jews of mistranslating this and we would probably uh, repay the compliment. But there's a a way of resolving the uh, the argument here I mean, that this mm-hmm. word that's that we're disputing here comes up you know a number of times in the bible and all you need to do really is check to see how this word is translated elsewhere well this is what i was going to say because within psalm 22 uh, th- i mean we have uh, verse 13 it says they gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion that's verse 13 in verse uh, verse 21, just a little further on, save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild ox. Right. So there it is speaking about um, a lion. And, you know, that's why, you know, when we the translate. Yeah, yeah. That, that when we translate this verse as, you know, uh, like a lion there at my hands and feet, like a lion at my hands and feet, it's not mm. just pulling a lion out of the hat. 
the lions <laughs> have been all over this chapter. And not just right. in this chapter, by the way. You know, in chapter 7, uh, the beginning of chapter 7, you know, the writer of the psalm speaks about being attacked by lions. Mm-hmm. In chapter 17, I think it's verse 12. Also, I mean, it, the, the, you know, it's interesting, throughout the Bible... Uh, the enemies of the Jewish people are often described as wild animals. Mm. And that's why one of the themes in the book of Isaiah is that the messianic age of future peace in the world is described as a world where all the animals are going to get along. You know? mm. And so, uh, this so idea... You just mentioned, you mentioned uh, Psalm 17, verse 12. It says, yes. As a lion is eager to tear his prey and like a young lion lurking in secret places... Ka'ari, is that in that verse? Yes, yeah, so here the Hebrew is ke'arie, ke'arie rather than ka'ari. So it's a very, very similar Hebrew word mm. and form, but it's not the exact same word. Right. Um, okay. But the point is that, um, you know, the, the idea of, you know, the, the psalmist here, you know, being surrounded by, by this lions at his hands and feet is, is, is not something which is sort of strange because throughout... This psalm itself, as you point out, and in the previous psalms, chapter three and chapter chapter seven and chapter seventeen, you know the the attackers, the attackers of David, are referred to as as lions. Mm. Um, so the, the, we have this contextually, but then more yes. importantly, you have the exact word though, ka'ari. I think I found it four times in other places of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, it appears in Isaiah chapter thirty-eight, thirteen. And in Numbers chapter 23, 24, and in Numbers chapter 24, verse 9, and Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 25. And there, the King James Version, and I think most Christian, almost all Christians. Oh, I've got, it, I've got it right in front of me. Isaiah chapter 38, verse 13. I have, I have considered until morning like a lion, so he breaks all my bones from day until night. You make an end of me. Like a lion. That's, you're, you're telling me that that's Kari. Same exact word as we have here in Psalms 22. I am at a loss to fathom what is going on here, <laughs> Rabbi Michael Skobek, because what you're telling me is that here they chose to uh, interpret the exact same word as they pierced, and yet in the same Christian uh, translation over in uh, Isaiah 38, chapter uh, 38, verse uh, 13, it doesn't say... I have considered until morning, um, they have pierced, so he breaks all my bones. You have, I, I, I don't understand. Why, why does it say, uh, why have they translated Ka'ari as like a line in that verse and not in the psalm? Yeah, and, and in these other places as well, in Numbers and in Ezekiel, it, meaning that every other place in the Bible, this word appears, it's translated like a lion. And if you go to Israel, any third grader would know the word ka'ari is basically a, con- a combination of the, of the word ari, which means a lion, and the ka is the word, the letter signifying um, similitude, like a lion. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty simple Hebrew word. And well, what's uh, the Hebrew word that they claim is? It would, I mean, I don't understand how. Where do they get off doing this? How do they change well, it? Well, because I think that, that there is such a need to find this psalm referring repeatedly to Jesus that they somehow, uh, you know, they came to the Temple with the text. 
Uh, I think they took license with the translation. I'm going to call it tampering with the text. Okay. I just don't, I don't understand. I'm going to, if people disagree with me, write in and, and, and give us another uh, explanation as to what has happened because I cannot understand how it can say they pierced here in Psalm 22 and yet in various other places in the Tanakh, uh, the very same word is translated even in the Christian translations as like a lion, mind Alone. Shall we continue? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the truth is that you know, if we had a few hours, we can go into all of the Christian apologetics that try to come up with um, some reason for rendering this word as pierced. Um, yeah, and I, I don't know. I don't doubt that those apologetics are there, and that they do take quite a few hours to explain. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but- they they will try and say that the Hebrew word ka'ari is a letter vav at the end, and it really could be seen as a vav, which is a similar-looking letter. And that would they, make it ka, ka'aru, ka'aru, right? And they say ka'aru can mean to be to be pure. Well, it's not ka'aru; it's ka'aru. Wouldn't it be ka'aru? Uh, they, they would somehow come up with some way of reading it as ka'aru. Is there a Hebrew word ka'aru? So the problem is that there isn't. And There's no Hebrew word the, ka'aru. The, the, the bigger problem is this: the bigger problem is that 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 root of kara. If there was such a Hebrew root, um, actually, there, it does appear in the Bible. It appears in Psalm 40, um, verse 6 in a Christian Bible and verse 7 in a Jewish translation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it means to open or to dig. It says, Oznaim karisoli, my ears you have opened. Mm. You, could, you could say that you've dug out my ears because they were clogged mm-hmm. up. But it doesn't mean to pierce or to stab. There are three other. Thank goodness Hebrew- for that. <laughs> you stabbed God. my ears. Oh. <laughs> there was a story. Anyway. <laughs> I read a story a few a few years ago about someone who had a, it must have been American, he had a pistol on his night table. And uh, the phone rang in the middle of the night. Instead of picking up the phone, he picked up his pistol and shot himself in the ear. Oh. So <laughs> here you had someone whose ear was actually <laughs> was pierced. Oh, no. <laughs> but, um, but there are three other Hebrew roots that do mean to pierce. One is Dakar, which you mm-hmm. find in Zechariah 12.10, as a matter of fact, which we'll be getting mm-hmm. to. We'll get um, to they'll look upon the one they pierced. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Ratzah, which people will recognize from Exodus 21.6, where they would take the person's ear that wanted to remain a slave, and they pierce his ear. True, yeah. And there's Nakar, which appears in 2 Kings 18.21, mm-hmm. which also means to pierce or to puncture. So, this idea that somehow the Hebrew word here got, you know, sort of misformed and it shouldn't be kari, it should be karu, it wouldn't help because the root does not mean anyway piercing. It means to uncover or to open something up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, th- it basically becomes a, a desperate attempt to find some substantiation of this mistranslation. But at the end of the day, it's, it's a mistranslation. Um, Good heavens! Yeah, All right. um, that's that one. Shall we? Shall we continue? Because we're, we're for the sake of time. I'll tell you what, we're we're pretty close. Uh, Psalm twenty-two. Now we're up to verse seventeen, and what it says is, <clears throat> uh, and I'm going to. Did I read from seventeen? I'm going to read from seventeen to eighteen. They count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now uh, and. <laughs> I don't know. It's stripped him before uh, and, and all the stares of men. I mean, it does talk about how they stared at him. I don't know that they were staring at him, counting his bones. I don't, I don't understand that correlation there on this 
81 does not really speak about 81. in the psalm anyone being stripped. Mm. Um, they do speak about you know being looked at. Yeah, um, but there's no mention of anyone that's being stripped. Yeah. It's, it's it's grasping at straws. Well, the, the the way they came up with it was that the next verse, since they divide the garments, they divide right? the garments. So he so he we do have a story. Yeah. So we have a story about the how they they thought oh this is good material. Uh, let's let's divide it. Let's cast lots to see who wins. And uh, there's a story in John in that regard. Yeah, I mean, the, the, again, the, the the simplest problem here is that this psalm, these are not predictions about the coming of the Messiah. And so, you know, we could just leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Psalm 22, verse uh, 20 to 21, it does say, uh, in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll read 19 and I'll read on from there. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. All my strength hasten to be uh, to help me, deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog, save me from the lion, the mouth of the, the, uh, of the lion, and from the horns of the wild ox. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren in the in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. Uh, that's nineteen to twenty two. Now here in the list, twenty and twenty one, he committed himself to God. They've got uh, Luke twenty three forty six there, and they also now I've got on the list. Number 84, satanic power bruising the Redeemer's heel. And we've got Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. I have no idea how we make that connection. Can you help me out? <laughs> I wish I could, Jono. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> where, where does it say anything about the satanic power bruising the Redeemer's heel? So before heel? we get to the satanic power, we get back to oh, number right. 83 here. Okay. Um, where he says that this psalm speaks about... Um, it, it predicts the Messiah committing committing himself to God. Now, I'm not quite sure what that means. You know, I don't think it means that you know it's talking about someone that's gonna you know, you know like they, they commit themselves to becoming a Christian. Um, you know, it's hard to imagine that Jesus at one point didn't believe in God, and now he's coming to commit himself to God. Now he's committing. No, so what it says, and, and when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he, he breathed his last. So I guess he's saying uh, the body now will, will, is going to die and my spirit will uh, return to you, as it says in Ecclesiastes. Right, but now um, that's, that's where the problem kicks in here because it's the, the, the phrase to commit himself to God basically is a way of saying that he's laying himself down, he's accepting the fact that he's going to die. And, you know, he's now reconciled to the fact that he will now be in the bosom of God, which is what happens to people after they die. Mm-hmm. The problem is that in these two verses in the book of Psalms, it's not speaking about someone who's reconciled to dying. It's a prayer that the person wants to be rescued from dying. Um, it just doesn't really flow from the text in the book of Psalms. Mm. Um, so it's true in, in the gospel accounts, Jesus says, into your hands I commend, I commit my spirit. But the the psalmist here is not giving up, so to speak. No, he's not giving up at all. No, and that's why. No, he's saying he's, he's saying hasten to help me. Yeah, there's a bit of a disconnect here between what the psalm says and what the um, list maker here is trying to extract. From yeah. Him. Now in, the next indeed. one. Um, oh my goodness! The satanic <laughs> power bruising. So if you read he, psalm, you know, let me read it. Hebrews <laughs> Hebrews chapter two verse fourteen says, "Inasmuch." As the children have partaken of flesh and blood, oh my goodness, <laughs> he himself 
likewise shared in the same, that though that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So smile when you say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, here, you know, all you need to do is, you know, they, they have uh, what they call che- fact checkers these days. Um, I remember when I was watching the uh, reports of the American uh, presidential debates, they'd have all these people doing fact-checking. The problem here is that the psalm, you know, even though I, I know that the writer of Hebrews, you know, gets very excited about Satan bruising the Redeemer's heel, mm. th- there's nothing in this psalm that speaks about Satan, nothing. doesn't speak about a Redeemer, doesn't speak about bruising the Redeemer's heel. This literally, again, there's no connection between what the psalm actually says and what the None. list maker here is trying to assert. None whatsoever. So I'm sure, I'm sure the listeners will concur. Uh, the next one on the list is uh, Psalm 22, verse 22. 22, 22. Uh, it says, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. And it is uh, the corresponding verse in the New Testament according to this list. It says, his resurrection declared, John 20, 17. And John twenty seventeen says, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Now, that's kind of weird, because a second ago it said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Yet here it is, he's risen from the dead, and he says, haven't done it yet. But, um, but go and tell my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. But again, twenty two twenty two, it says, I will declare your name to my brethren. What's going on here? Yeah, it's basically straining at a gnat, as we would say. Oh. Um, and there's just, there's, there's no, again, nothing in this psalm which speaks about a resurrection. Um, so, uh, it, it's really hard to know, you know, how seriously this list maker um, was approaching th- this, this book of psalms, this chapter in psalms, because, you know, not only is it stretching, uh, you know, what things mean, it's really basically inventing things that aren't there at all. One thing to stretch an interpretation, but here there's just simply nothing in this psalm about there's someone being resurrected. Absolutely nothing. So, so and, you know, we've encountered that a number of times, and as we said last week, and I think even the week before, this was probably and surely, uh, uh, hopefully intended just to be a bluff and not to be not to be uh, studied as we are. We're almost at the end. Look at this. We've got two to go. Thank God. Psalm, 20, <laughs> psalm 22, verse 27. But let me read the, the verses in between, starting from 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All, your, uh, all you, descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard, uh, my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. Uh, the poor shall, shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him, praise the Lord, let your heart live forever. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Now, I've got a little asterisk there. If I go down and I have a look at that, it says that um, uh, that some uh, translate it as him. So, all shall worship before him. Who is the him? Well, we only have to go back a couple of sentences. It says that uh, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. Verse 28, for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. What do we have here on the list? Okay, so we have number 86 on the list. 86, um, and that corresponds to, oh, well, this is 
Colossians verse one sixteen. It says, "For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him." What's the connection? So here, this is very interesting, actually, because you know we spoke before about this question of the Trinity and is Jesus. Um, uh, God is Jesus, human being, and there seems to be confusion there. Here you actually find it in their interpretation of this psalm, because earlier in verse 19, at least in the Christian uh, mm-hmm. num- numbering of the verses, Jesus addresses the Lord. Jesus speaks as a human being to the mm. Lord. And here in verse 27, they identify Jesus as the Lord. Um, so there, there is some internal confusion here about you know Jesus as um, someone who approaches God, mm. um, or Jesus, uh, you know, according to Colossians 1.16, is God. Jesus here is claimed to be the creator. Yeah, mm. so, you know, this becomes, um, you know, I, I always actually found this to be very strange, because um, my Christian Bible, many of them are what they call red-letter editions. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's supposedly, or these are the words that Jesus spoke. Now, I always was puzzled why they don't have red letters in the Old Testament. Because if they're saying that Jesus is the creator, right, then let there be light should be written in red. Um, and every time the Lord speaks in the, in, in the Old Testament, it should be written in red. Mm-hmm. So there, there is this confusion where, you know, they're making the assertion here that this is a verse, when you read this verse in Psalm 22:27, it's actually speaking about the Lord's God's dominion over all the nations of the world. Um, mm. And that's true. That's going to be something that uh, applies to God. But the Christian assertion here is that, well, that's Jesus. Jesus is God. Um, you know, it's one thing to make the claim that Jesus is God. There's another thing to actually having that claim, you know, make that be true. There's a yeah. famous uh, story they tell about Abraham Lincoln where he would say, um, you know, if you take a, a jackal and you call its tail a leg, how many legs does it have? So if someone said it has five legs, he said, no, it only has four legs. If you call the tail a leg, does it make it a leg? Mm. And just to say that, you know, let's say even Jesus, I don't think he did, but let's say he claimed to be God, doesn't make him God. Um, mm. So here you have within the same psalm passages where Jesus clearly addresses God and he's not God because he's asking for things, he's beseeching God. Um, and then the Christian interpretation here just insists that this verse about God is really speaking about Jesus. Um, very, uh, obviously, yeah, it, very it doesn't prove anything because basically it just requires that you accept the Christian axiom, the Christian assertion. So it really mm. only works backwards. And then finally, um, this is a great place to end tonight. It is finished. Um, number <laughs> 87 um, so, well, let me let me read the, the just a couple of verses here because it'd be a shame to miss out on Psalm 22 in its entirety. Uh, I got up to 28, verse 29. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship, and those who go down to the dust shall bow before Him, even He who cannot keep Himself alive. Uh, a pros- posterity shall serve Him. It, w- it will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation, they will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. Wow, and that's the way it ends. What a spectacular chapter. Now the, the correlating verse in the New Testament, according to this list, and the final one for Psalm 
chapter 22 is John 19 verse 30 and it does say so when Jesus had received the sour wine he said it is finished and bowing his head he gave up his spirit thoughts well this is you know like um you know they have those books where is Waldo um, yeah. So here, you know, you're going to have to look for a very long time to find anything about uh, being something finished or finishing or anything to do with anything it is at all. Because the specific verse that they've listed is uh, 31, that they will come and declare his righteousness to a, to a people who will be born, that he has done this. What, what is, where, I mean, Jesus drank sour wine, said it's finished, bowed his head and gave up his spirit. How are these two verses remotely uh, connected? It's a mystery, Jono. <laughs> it's another mystery. It's there it mystery. is. It's a mystery. <laughs> um, I have good news, by the way. Um, we are basically almost one quarter of the way through. I know, we're a quarter through. We're now up to number 90. Is that what we're... we're no, no, where are we now? 88. 88. We're up to 88 of 365 so-called messianic prophecies in the Tanakh, apparently fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament. We are one quarter of the way through. Oh, my goodness. And the uh, But we're still in the Psalms, and we're going to be in the Psalms for a little while because, boy, oh, boy, the uh, the person who put this list together went hell for leather through the Psalms to try and find similar wording or, or whatever it may be. We're going to look at uh, each and every one of those, and we'll get back to it next time, my friend. Thank you so much. <laughs> For coming back on and getting through, I mean, because really Psalm 22 is, isn't it? It's uh, it's one of those go-to verses. If you only got a short space of time and you want to, uh, you want to, you want to get into the short list, Psalm 22 is definitely on that list. So I appreciate you coming back onto the program and going through it. My pleasure, Jono. Always a always a, a wonderful thing to have you on the program, my friend, uh, Rabbi Michael Skobek of Jews for Judaism Canada. Jews for Judaism Canada, and the website is JewsforJudaism.ca. JewsforJudaism.ca. If you like that, folks, boy, oh boy, there's a whole lot more on that website. If you go to JewsforJudaism.ca, there's an enormous amount of resources there. Get into it, and uh, till next time, when we continue on through the Psalms, be blessed and be set apart by the truth of our Father's Word. Shalom. Shalom.